following audio is from a sermon series called Rebuilding the Ruins. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah begin with the people of God in Babylonian exile due to their unfaithfulness. The God of heaven, who is faithful to his promises, then stirs up and empowers his people to walk anew in faithfulness and rebuild the ruins. For more information about Sacred City Moline, please visit scmoline.com. Lord, from Ezra 8:21 through 36. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hand 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord and the vessels are holy and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem, within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem, to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, son of Uriah. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Binuah. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the providence beyond the river. And they aided the people and the house of God. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, If you were with us last week, uh, we took a break 
from Ezra to revel in the resurrection. We jumped into um, Romans chapter eight for a little bit, but we are jumping right back into the book of Ezra. Um, going, we left off actually mid Ezra chapter eight is where we left off. And so as we resume through the book of Ezra, and we're really on the tail end of it here. I wanna give a quick refresher because if you haven't been with us, I wanna bring you up to speed. The book of Ezra is a lot like a storybook. If you're reading a storybook, you don't jump into chapter 12 uh, and, and then write it out to the end. You, you gotta have the context that sets you up for chapter 12 into the grand finale. And so let me do this. This, this is a story of rebuilding the ruins. Um, and actually we're, we're linking Ezra and Nehemiah together. They were originally in, in the original um, Jewish scripture was one book of the Bible and the book of the Bible we have now is, is parceled out um, and it's fine. Um, but, but it's a story that's meant to be told together. And the story is a story of rebuilding the ruins. Um, or you could say it like this. It's a story of sweeping reformation. And the story begins with God's people um, who, who have been exiled. They've been, um, the city that they dwelt in Jerusalem had been ransacked, destroyed. Uh, the temple, the walls of the city, all of the structures ha had been destroyed and toppled down. And it was just this giant rubble heap. And you might ask, why, why does this happen? Well, the reason this happened is because God's people had rebelled against God, that God's people had drifted away from a singular worship of Yahweh, the one true and living God, into pagan idolatry, worshiping other gods. The, the outside influences from other cultures had, had infiltrated the people of God and their worship had been defiled. And so God in an act of judgment and gracious judgment, he, he topples the city of Jerusalem. And they remain in, in Babylonian exile for uh, about 70 years. And through that time, God had promised through the prophets Isaiah that he would one day restore his people. He would bring them home, have this great homecoming and restore the city to its glory. And this is where we begin in the story of Ezra. God stirs up in the hearts of men over and over and over again. We see this first, God stirs up in the heart of King Cyrus, who's the Persian king. He's a pagan king who issues a decree for the people of Jerusalem. If they want to, they can go back home. So that opens up a roadway for them. God stirs up in the heart of, of the people who want to go back to actually go back and give themselves to this huge task of rebuilding a city. God stirs up in the people who stay behind in Babylon to give the goods that they need, money, gold, silver, the vessels that are needed to, to restore the temple to its glory. God provides by stirring up people's hearts. And as God stirs up men and women to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild from the ruins, the first order of business is to rebuild the temple, the dwelling place of God, the place where heaven and earth meet, where God dwells among his people. And this means, what this indicates to rebuild the temple means to restore God's people to right worship, that their hearts would be aligned to the God of the cosmos. And this is really what we see going on in the first six chapters of Ezra. It's a story of rebuilding the temple, that worship gets reformed. And then as we move into chapter seven through the end of Ezra, 
we see that the Reformation doesn't just happen within the temple. God intends for the Reformation to go beyond the walls of the temple into the whole of the city. The whole society would undergo Reformation. And this is what we saw um, in the beginning of chapter 7, that, that the king sent Ezra, King Artaxerxes sent Ezra back, who was a skilled lawyer in the law of God. He knew, he understood, he was a learned man in the scriptures. And he was to go back and to teach people how to live in line with the word of God. And as he does that, he's supposed to appoint these magistrates, these, these judges who operate based upon the scriptures. They're sent to build a Christian society. Now, what is, what is culture? What is society? Cornelius Van Til says it like this. Culture is religion externalized. Whatever culture you're in, it's pointing to what the people are worshiping. And so for us to look at this and say they, they want to build a Christian society, it's just pointing, this is what they're worshiping. They're worshiping the one true God. So they go back. They, they, well, they're on their way back. And what we left off with last time we were in Ezra chapter 8 was Ezra gathering leading men and families to go back to Jerusalem and work for reformation, to, to reform the society to become a Christian society. Now, today's passage, what we're looking at here in Ezra chapter 8, verses um, 21 through 39 it documents this passage, this voyage that the people make from Babylon back to Jerusalem. This is a voyage that's been made before. And, and you may remember, recall, that this is a 500-mile journey from point A to point B. 500 miles is the equivalent of Moline to Nashville. Now, for us, that's not a huge deal. I mean, you can hop in a car this afternoon or this morning, get done with church, you can be there by the end of the day. About eight hour trip if you jump in the car and go. You load up on Pichos, that's what I do. You go to the gas station, grab those Pichos, maybe a bang, and you just go for it, right? You don't know Pichos? Candy, peach rings, the gummies. Every time. Now, if you cruise slightly over the speed limit, you might, might even be able to beat Google Maps ETA, okay? That's, that's the advantage. And if your kids sleep for the majority of that trip, then you're really cooking, right? That's, that's the sweet stop. But for Ezra and company, this 500-mile journey is a huge deal. There's no cars. They're, they're either on foot, they're walking uh, alongside donkeys. And not only is it a huge deal, but they actually take the opposite approach. Where I load up on junk food... Here they fast. We're told that they, they come to the river Ahava and they fast. They refrain from eating. They refrain from drinking. And it's not for health reasons, which a lot of people in our society are into this intermittent fasting thing, which is totally cool. I'm a big fan of it. But that's not why. It's not for health reasons. What they're doing, they're refraining from drink and food to feast on God. Now, they have this camping trip. They're fasting. And this whole thing makes my family's pre-trip prayers that we, that we say in the car before we go anywhere, it, it makes us look silly. 
They're, they're putting aside, there's, there's an urgency about them. They're filling up on prayer instead of filling up on food. And what are they doing here? They're expressing their need for God. They're acknowledging we and ourselves, we're needy. We, we, we have weaknesses. We, we have some, some, in, uh, some insufficiencies that we need help with. And they're professing their reliance upon God. Now, really, that's the whole point of this fast. We're told in verse 21, the point is to seek God's supernatural help for this trick. Verse 21, then, this is Ezra speaking, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. Now, the reason why there's this urgency, the reason why they give themselves to fasting before they go on this trip is because it's a dangerous trip. On their way back to Jerusalem, it's very likely that this company that goes back with Ezra will face real risk. That there are looming threats out there as they make their way. And unlike us, we've got, we've got safety nets. If we're going from here to Nashville, we've got all kinds of safety nets. You can stop at a 7-Eleven, fill up on gas, get some food if you need it. If you're really in trouble, call the police, AAA. Somebody can be there, you get a flat tire, right? We've got all of these safety nets that make traveling for us not a huge deal. They had none of those things. Not to mention, it's all on foot. It's, it's this slow, arduous journey through, not, not just 500 miles, but 500 miles of tough terrain through desert. I mean, you try walking on the beach through the sand, you know how tough that is? How slow you move? Try going up and down mountain ranges. It's going to slow you down. It is, it is a very demanding journey. Now, not only is, is the terrain difficult, the, the distance, a challenge, but there are other internal and external factors that are at play here in this journey that makes this trip very dangerous. Now, the first thing is, is the company of who, who's all traveling. If, if it were just the leading men that, that Ezra gathers, then maybe they could march like soldiers and maybe move at a quicker clip but we're told here in verse 21, they're traveling with women and children. It's a whole family affair. Everybody from the family is going. Now, if you've gone on a road trip with kids, you know that this adds a myriad of variables to the enjoyment and quickness of the trip, right? You've got sickness, fatigue. Are we there yet? Always going, restlessness, the immaturity of just, you know, they can't focus, Drifting off, you gotta kinda, it's like herding squirrels a little bit. You gotta keep them all together. And so what this means, this whole company moves less like soldiers and more like shepherds. It's a slower pace. They've gotta tend to the needs of the people as they arise, as they make this huge journey, whether they stub their toes on rocks or fall hungry, or they just need a pep talk. The band of, of the faithful returning are, are trying to keep the whole crew together. Now, this is a challenge. And I'm exp I experience this every time we take our family to Target. You try taking a family of six to Target, you can't keep everybody one place at a time. Now, multiply that times 500 miles, 
and a lot more dangerous terrain, it's going to be a very difficult journey. And so all these internal factors of of the the band, the company that is with them, not only does this affect the pace of travel, it actually makes them vulnerable. There are enemies lying in wait. This was a thing that happened often in these ancient days. Um, It was dangerous to travel. And that's part of the reason, um, the, the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells that's part of, he's acknowledging this reality of traveling from city to city is not an easy thing like it is for us now. There's danger involved. And when you throw in the whole family, you slow it down. You put a chink in the armor. These enemies, it makes it easy for them to ambush. It makes, them easy, it, makes it easy for them to pounce. And when they do a couple things, there are a few things that they will do, ways that they take advantage. Either they're gonna rob them, they're gonna take their goods, Take their food. That, that's probably the least damage that they do. The other one is to enslave them, to basically hijack the whole company and says, you work for us now. Or the worst case scenario is they get killed. They're, they're walking on foreign territory. They're, they're trespassing in places that they don't even know who's in charge. And so there's this danger. It's a brutal world out there. Now, what heightens the danger? Like this, there's a, this risk of being ambushed. What, what heightens this danger is the fact that they are flush with cash. Their pockets are loaded. They've got all kinds of gold and silver. We, we see this document here um, in verse 26 where he's weighing out all into the hands of the people a bunch, a bunch of, of, of gold and silver and bronze and other vessels. And what this, you know, we read this and we can't really add it up, but one commentator says he estimates that it's roughly 30 tons of valuable material. Could you imagine walking 500 miles through that terrain with the family, knowing that there's threat out there, all while carrying 30 tons of valuables? The people are under a heavy weight, like literally under a heavy weight. They're carrying a heavy weight. And this makes them an easy target. It's like a, a, they, they might as well be a honey pot for the burglars. They hit them. It's a big payday. Now, I suggest to you that this is maybe one of the only times in life where you wouldn't want to be gifted massive amounts of gold, right? Huge, long journey, a lot of danger. I mean, maybe if you're swimming, you don't necessarily want to be given a bunch of gold. That'll weigh you down. But this is another moment where you don't want a bunch of gold, yet they have it. Ezra and company are facing this massive amount of danger. It's important for us. It's critical for us to see this, not only in their journey, but what they're going back to do, as we'll see later on with Nehemiah, as they're trying to build the walls. And they've got trowels in one hand and swords in the other. It's dangerous work. There's all kinds of risks. There's all kinds of threats lying out there. Now, this is what drove Ezra and the rest of the crew to fervently seek God's help. They knew what they were up against. They were not naive. They were not unaware of the dangers that were out there. And so they go to God for help in fasting. Now, there might be a little bit of curiosity about why... Why doesn't he go to King Artaxerxes for help? 
Well, why, if King Artaxerxes has been so generous in supplying gold, and, and we've seen before how there's this ample provision that just gets heaped up on the people of God, why wouldn't they just say, hey, you know what, could you help us make sure that we can get from Babylon back to Jerusalem? Why don't they go and ask for help? That's something that Nehemiah does later on. He, he gets an envoy of, of help from, from the king to get him from point A to point B. Why doesn't Ezra do the same? Ask for bodyguards to escort them back. Well, verse 22 tells us why. Verse 22 says that Ezra was ashamed to ask for the king's help. Take a look. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. So there he knows there's an enemy. There they know they've got gold and valuables to protect. And he's ashamed. Since we had told the king, here's why. The hand of our God is, is for good on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God, and for this, and this he listened to our entreaty. The reason why Ezra was ashamed is he had been talking a big game about God's hand that is upon them. It's been this reoccurring theme throughout the whole story that God's hand was upon them. God's hand brought about blessing. God's hand enabled them to do this crazy thing. God was behind it all. And Ezra thought that to ask for the king's help would have undermined God's glory in this whole deal. Right? He was talking to me, God's hand is upon us and we're going to prosper and to say, well, by the way, could we, could we get a little hand here? Say, wait, is your God not mighty enough after all? He was concerned about God's reputation. So what did Ezra do? He banked on the hand of God being upon the righteous. He's saying here, when he says the hand of God is upon the righteous and and it's working for the good of those righteous people, he's saying, I believe myself to be among the righteous and that God will work for our good. Now, when when we sit back and look at all of the variables, all of the factors that are at play here, we might look at Ezra and say, what are you thinking, man? Like so, it's so naive. It's so thoughtless of you, Ezra. You're putting women and children in danger. You're carrying this huge, heavy load of gold and, and value. It just seems so careless of you to not turn to the king for help if it's available. You're putting people at risk for no good reasons. But what I want to suggest is that this, this is what faith looks like. This is Ezra taking God at his word. As Hebrews 11 verse one says, now faith is assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Ezra has conviction about God, about his character, about the mission that God has called him to. Ezra knows the risk. He sees the dangers that lie out there. Yet, He does not cower. He doesn't tuck his tail between his legs and run the opposite direction. He takes God at his word. As Psalm 20 verse seven says, some trust in horses and chariots. We boast in God. 
He knew his strength comes from the Lord, not the numbers, not not the political force, not the army force. His strength comes from God and they put that to the test. Now we have to realize that, that this journey, it's a huge deal, but it pales in comparison to the bigger picture of what God is calling his people to do. If Israel was going to see culture-wide reformation, if they were going to see this this renewal, this reforming that takes place, if they were to see the upheaval of of the old way of of worshiping pagan gods and this, this singular focus on worshiping and honoring the God, the true living God, that it had to begin with trust. That the people of God had to put their faith in Jesus. That they had to put their faith in God. Now, Reformation is a huge undertaking. It makes the 500-mile journey pale in comparison. But Reformation is undergirded by faith and trust in God. That when he teaches us to pray on earth as it is in heaven, we're actually believing that God wants it to be here on earth as it is in heaven. And that he wants us to participate in the activity of advancing the kingdom of heaven here, 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 right here on earth. It requires massive amounts of faith, massive amount of trust. But in order to get to the reforming of the culture, it starts with this long, difficult journey that has to be walked out by faith. Literally. They're they're literally walking in faith. They're trusting that God will provide everything that they need. That even when they come against opponents and burglars and robbers or people who are out to, to harm them, God is so for their good that they can be at ease. They don't need to take, have any fear. Now, I think that there are two big misconceptions about faith that it's easy for, for the church to, to drift into today. The first misconception is just because you have faith means that things will be easy. That if you have faith and if you do the right thing, everything will magically fall into place. That you won't meet any kind of resistance. That it'll just be kind of like smooth sailing. It's because, oh, my faith is in God and he's got me taken care of. But actually, the scriptures tell us that if we're going to have that kind of commitment to God, we should expect opposition. That, that we should be ready for the hardships and trials and difficulties that come when we live by faith. In fact, as, as the apostle Paul is mentoring Timothy, his protege, he says in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 12, he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now that means even though God calls us to a noble thing, it is usually attached to danger. Now just because God calls us to something doesn't mean it will be easy. Just because God calls us to something doesn't mean we will be safe and comfortable. As Susan is talking to Mr. Beaver in the Chronicles of Narnia, she learns that Aslan is a lion. 
She's a little scared. She's intimidated. She says, well, is, is he safe? Mr. Beaver says, oh, no, he's not safe, but he's good. There, there's this element. The reality is you come to God, you, you live according to faith, you'll be thrust into danger. Why do you think the number one command in the scriptures is fear not? It's because you will always meet danger. There will always be resistance. That which is noble is almost always attached to danger. Now, the second misconception that it's easy for us to have about faith is that faith is passive. To, to, to live by faith means that I sort of just like, I let go and let God. That I sort of abdicate any kind of activity, any sort of agency, any sort of responsibility upon my own um, activity or, or behavior. I just sort of sit and wait. Now, to, to let me clear up. There is an aspect of faith that is still, be still and know that I am God. But real faith, true faith, is a working faith. True, true faith doesn't just sit twiddling its thumbs. Real faith works. It lives in accordance with faith. It, it does activity in accordance with that faith. As James says, faith without works is dead. There's this connection between our activity and our trust in God. They are linked together. Luther says, true faith will no more fail to produce good works then the sun can cease to give light. They have to go together. True faith will create good, faithful activity. And what this means that the Christian life is not this greyhound bus where you just, you just get on the bus and you sit still and by some sort of miraculous thing you get from point A to point B and God just carries you the whole way. Yes, God does carry us, God does sustain us, but God commissions us, God gives us grace to take action. In this way, the Christian in life is more like a pedal pub than it is a greyhound bus. You know what, have you seen those going downtown? You got a whole group of your buddies sitting on this little thing where you sit at a bar type thing and you're pedaling the whole way through the city. Everybody's moving their legs. Everybody's contributing to move the thing along the way. And that's what it's like. That's what real faith looks like. We are working with God according to our faith. Ezra did not bite on either one of these misconceptions. He saw the danger that was out there. And he didn't just see it, he leaned into it. Like Peter and Lucy and Edmund and Susan, like Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther and Daniel, we too are called into danger. Christians can move into danger with great confidence that God goes with us, that the hand of God is upon us, that he is for the righteous. 
Ezra had conviction of God's calling, that he was meant to go back to Jerusalem. He was meant to rebuild a Christian society. And the danger that lied in between, laid in between that, his calling and the fulfillment of that mission did not deter him. And he took action. He played his part. He used his agency to walk by faith. He didn't do that by himself, though. He's got a band of brothers and sisters committed to the same convictions. And Ezra, being a faith-filled leader, commands these men and women to follow suit, to make the journey, to put one foot in front of the other, to walk by faith. And as they walk, they are to guard and keep the vessels, to, to be on watch, to be diligent, to use their agency to see to the accomplishing of that mission. Now, what we see going on in this passage, I think there are a lot of, of parallels here in the church today. No, not literally. No, nobody, I'm not asking anybody to take a 500-mile journey on foot or anything like that, but I know that there are a lot of overarching commonalities between the church today and the people of Israel back then. Three things that I wanna show you that are today that I, I wanna call us to live into like Ezra calls the people of Israel to live into. First of all, to make the spiritual exodus. There's a spiritual exodus that's happening here. It's marked uh, physically, it's marked literally in, in the geographical removal from Babylon to Jerusalem. This marks a, a, a diversion or, or a departure from a pagan society where, where they're worshiping different idols, lesser gods than the one true God. And so they are physically removing themselves from Babylon to go to Jerusalem. Now we take a similar spiritual journey. We are born worshipers. Everyone is. There's not a single person under the sun that doesn't worship something. And the call that God places upon Christians is to eject the false gods, the false idols of comfort, of success, of family, of money, of sex. Whatever those false gods are, get rid of them and to worship the thing that will actually satisfy We are to leave behind the world. Now, it's said like this in John 17. We are to be in the world, not of the world. So, so it's not a physical removal from the world. We're not going to Hermitville. We're not setting up some sort of monastery. We're in the world, but not of the world. There's a spiritual exodus that happens in our own hearts. We break away from the pagan worship, have a singular commitment to Yahweh. And as we go, God, number two, calls us to a huge mission. Now, this is interesting because the mission for Ezra was to rebuild a Christian society in Jerusalem. When Jesus gives us a great commission, he teaches us to build a Christian society in the world. It's a huge mission. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all I've commanded. We are to disciple the nations. We are, as the church, 
we have this huge mission before us. And we say it like this in Sacred City. We're here to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city, to renew our city. This is the sphere that we have the most influence in. We want to give ourselves to the reformation of the Quad City, specifically to Moline and the other connecting cities. Now, that's the big picture, to see societal reformation take place. But in order for that to happen, it has to happen first at the church level, that we are a church always committed to the word of God. Like, like Ezra sets up judges and magistrates, when also those who are, are functioning as, as the uh, high priests, the priests in the temple, they're doing everything in accordance with the word of God. That sort of God-centered, God-driven lifestyle, that mindset that my life is to be lived in line with the scriptures ought to drive us on this mission for reformation. In fact, the, the, the tagline of, of the Reformation that happened in 1517 with Luther started off and then the other guys carried on, Calvin, Zwingli, those dudes, the Reformation was this. The church reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. The driving factor behind the mission, the thing that gives us the vision of what Reformation looks like is the word of God. And if we see this at the church level, it has to take first at the family level, where we're making disciples in our own households. That first of all, we take discipleship seriously for ourselves. That's one of our identities at Sacred We say we're learners, we're disciples of Jesus. And one of the first things is that I take responsibility for my own discipleship. And once I've done that, I can help take responsibility for the discipleship of other people. Now this, this big mission of seeing reformation from the family to the church to the societal level. It's a massive load. It's, it's a heavy weight that's placed upon us. For, for the Israelites, it was gold, literally heavy weight. For us, there's this big calling, big responsibility. And a lot of that responsibility falls especially and primarily upon men. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Men are like trucks in that they drive straighter when they have a heavy load. Men are meant to take responsibility, not just for themselves, but for their wife, their family, their kids, into the church, their missional community, the church at large, as they step into the city. Now, this isn't just for men. We're all, as Christians, called to shoulder up underneath this heavy load, this high calling. But men, we have to lead by faith. Because what we face in doing this will be a lot of opposition. See, what, one of the things that Paul talks about is that we are enemies of God in our natural state that are, are, are hostile in our thinking that no like the world is cool with this man-made version of Jesus like this Jesus is my homeboy he seems like a good teacher like a cool dude I could probably drink a beer with him and we'd be cool it'd be fun well that, that's, a, that's a man-made construct of Jesus because what Jesus stands for society is repulsed by we have this natural repellent toward Jesus. And so if we're going to lead our families, our church, in this manner, 
we know that there will be danger. We can expect the pushback. And I want to encourage you, just as Ezra and company did not shy away in fear, that you too would walk by faith. To know that there are threats out there, but know that the bigger threat to our flourishing, to the flourishing of your family, is to stand still and do nothing. If you do nothing, it all falls apart. If we fail to lead by faith, we will be dominated by fear. God is calling us into freedom, into true life. Now, as we shoulder up under this load, that, that, that's a spiritual exodus, that it's, it's a big task, a huge undertaking, it's a heavy load. Men, it means that, it means that we have to provide more than resources. It means more than just providing a paycheck. To shoulder up under this calling that God has put, providing is a part of that, but we must provide spiritually for the people in our sphere of influence. And like I mentioned before, it starts with curating your own faith in Jesus. That's see to it that you are bolstering up your own faith. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Dive into the word of God. Feed your faith with the word of God. Feed your faith. Starve yourself from food to feast on God, to make petition made known. Fast, prayer, and fasting. These are just disciplines between scripture, prayer, and fasting that will help us live into this high calling, to live underneath this heavy weight. Now, it's paradoxical in a sense because you would think that to, to, to step up under the, the heavy weight, we would need as much energy, you get all of the things working in our favor as possible. Yet here in fasting, we empty ourselves. And so when I'm nothing, I can find everything that I need in Christ. This is the high calling that every Christian has regardless, male or female. But here's the thing. The only way that you can carry this heavy load, the the only way that you can shoulder up under this huge responsibility is if you lay down that which you were never meant to carry. You have to set aside one burden, one load to shoulder up under another. Now, what am I talking about here? I'm talking about the burden of sin. Sin is when you put your faith and trust in something other than God. That's sin. That's rebellion. That's, that, that's cosmic treason. And when we give our thing, ourselves to things like comfort and self, it prevents you from rising up to God's calling upon your life. It'll choke you out, it'll stall you out, it'll make you spin your wheels, it will cripple your ability to do what is noble in the eyes of God. And what Jesus calls us to do is to shed that burden, to repent, to turn away from it. But the thing is, is is we cannot shed this in ourselves. We cannot yank sin out of our hearts by our own power, by our own accord. This is precisely why Jesus came into the world. 
Not only did he live a perfect life uh, totally by faith, not, not only did he face all kinds of dangers and toils and struggles and oppositions, not only did he constantly do hard things for God's glory, he went to the cross to carry our own load, the weight of sin. And at the cross, he took on all of our sin, all of our baggage upon himself. And Hebrews tells us now to, to shed those things, to put off all that is hindering you, to put them onto Jesus so you can live into this calling that he's placed upon your life. Repentance is a way of deloading the burdens that we were not meant to carry, the sin that we get entangled in so that we can live by faith. And this is actually how we can have great confidence, just like Ezra did here, when he speaks of God's favor upon the righteous. How, how do I know that God's hand will be upon me? When I face all of these dangers, when I go against, I might lose friends, I might lose money. How, how do I know that God's gonna be for me? If I'm all, you know, this huge calling, how do I know I'm not gonna fail? Because you've been made righteous through Christ that your sin gets removed from you and his righteousness gets placed upon you. And so we can be certain that God's hand is upon the righteous and we are counted among the righteous. See, Jesus tells us in the Great Commission, he, he leaves us with a promise. He says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. I'll be with you till the end of the age. That's the promise. He'll be with us till the end of the age. His hand is upon us. That which God calls us into will not fail. It will prosper. All who trust in him will not be put to shame. So the way we shoulder up under this heavy load, we gotta get rid of the sin. And that's when we experience the gentle and lowly Jesus. He says, come to me all, you, all who are, are weary and heavy laden. What's he talking about? Lo lose the sin that is weighing you down. Put it upon me. Now that doesn't mean, he does say my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And the reason why he says that, it's still heavy. The mission still stands. But God is with you. The spirit of God is empowering you to do what God has called you to do. And therefore, the gospel frees us to live by faith. The gospel assures us that God is for us, not against us. The gospel tells us that we are among the righteous and ought to live in great confidence that God will work for the good of those who love him. The gospel gives us confidence to go head to head with danger, to do the hard thing, not the expedient thing. And one of the ways that we live into this calling church is by imitating Ezra in this, this emphasis on prayer and fasting. To acknowledge our own need for God and to cry out to him for help. To know that he desires to help us. He will uphold us. He will not let us fall. And as we see the goodness of God, we would hold fast to him, trust in him. And just as the Israelites had made it, this is crazy. The whole journey, it tells us, it sums it up for us. 
They say that, that they make the journey, so we fasted and we poured our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. The short, long story short, they got there safe. All of the goods made it there with them. They didn't lose anybody along the way. They were all counted and weighed. Everything, was, everything that was recorded was accounted for. They made it. And because of the gospel, we know that one day we will make it too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for your grace that calls us to yourself, that makes us righteous. We thank you for the grace that sustains us. We pray that we would not squander the grace, the powerful righteousness of God at work in our lives by twiddling our thumbs, by being fearful of danger. We ask that your spirit would lead us not to be thrill-seekers that are careless, but to be men and women who have our ear to the word of God to know what it is you've called us to, that we would walk in confidence in the direction that you've pointed us towards, that we would walk in confidence that you are going with us, that we would walk in confidence that you will give us all that we need. You give us confidence that the mission one day will be completed. Help us to live in accordance with that faith, Help us to use our agency, to, to, to use our energy and time and resources to give ourselves to that mission because it's worth it. It's worth it to see those who are far from Christ come to know the only one who will satisfy. It's worth it to go from a, a shallow faith to a deep faith and find the deepest needs of our hearts satisfied. We pray that you would show yourself to us in this way, Father. And we pray that the, the, the elements that we're about to receive at the Lord's table would testify to that reality that we take the bread that was broken for us, the blood that was shed on the behalf of our sins, that, that what Christ did for us there at the cross would point to the reality, by his wounds we are healed. By his work we are made righteous. By his, his gospel we know we are secure. Would you do that work in us now as we take this meal? Bless it to our bodies and bless us to your service. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.